It's a fact. Life can be hard, and dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience, and it can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we'll look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. Hi, I'm Sinead, and I'm joined by my colleagues Brian. Hello. And Elle. Hi. And we're part of Positive Group, a team that uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. I forgot that I was an average person. I forgot that I was an average athlete. I forgot about that because I was about to lose my family. So I decided I was going to try out for the National Football League. And the first person that I called was my high school football coach. Today, we're going to be hearing from a sports star and we'll be hearing the inspirational story of former NFL player Vernon Turner, who found his purpose through football after experiencing personal tragedy early in life. Elle, what role does sport play in your life? I think it's been, for me, an amazing source of friends, um, enjoyment, enabling me to eat more pizza. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think for me, sport's been a hugely beneficial um, part of my life from a young age, really. What about you, Brian? Sport for me was uh, really helpful in, uh, and I, I think like most human activities, they can inform how we see ourselves and how we think we're seen in the eyes of others so they can help our self-esteem and and uh, be connected to other other people so I think I think they're fantastic but I think we just have to sound a warning that sport isn't for everybody um, some people love sport and some people not so much but uh, I think everyone here today probably enjoys it but we have to recognize that for some people it's got bad associations and bad memories Brian, little Sinead did not love sport. I I was not a sports fan at all. But actually now I just, yeah, similar to you both, I find it's such an important outlet in life. It's a really good way of connecting to others. But just when you've had a tough day or you're feeling kind of quite frustrated, it's a really good way of, you know, just expelling some physical energy and regulating your emotions and and kind of helping you to sleep well at night. So I just find it such an important part of everyday life now. And sport obviously plays a really important role in Vernon's life. Vernon's story is one of great loss, but also of hope and determination. This story does contain reference to sexual violence and drug abuse, which some listeners may find upsetting. I mean, I left Brooklyn um, six and a half, seven years old, but the time that I was there, I had the utmost family environment and atmosphere. My grandmother had 10 kids, so you can imagine how many grandkids she had. The nucleus of of the family was my grandmother. That was my safe haven. That was my lifeline, having that family, that huge family unit that I had at the short amount of time that I lived there in, in, in Brooklyn. My mom lived at the house, but she really didn't live at the house. Seven day in a week, she's home maybe twice, if that. Um, she was out, you know, doing what she felt, I guess she had to do as far as drugs, and she was out prostituting, actually. 
The only times that I felt uncomfortable was when my mom came home. I would be the first one to greet her, but she would bypass me to give love to my younger brother. So after several, I, I don't know, maybe a half dozen times of that, um, then I got to a point to where I wouldn't be around. I would go in another room when she came home, so I did not experience that. I remember waking up to an argument that my mother and my grandmother was having, and I put my ear to the door, and I heard her say that we're leaving, and my grand grandmother was, where the heck do you think you're taking these kids? Um, you're hardly here. Um, they don't even know you. I, I got a new man and um, he's gonna, he loves me and he wants me to move. So I heard all of that to me and it was the most frightening moment because she was packing my things. And then the next thing you know, this white man drives up to the front of the house with his station wagon. Now, you got to understand, we're back in the 70s, early 70s. You have an African-American prostitute and drug addict that has two kids. He made the decision to move this family into his home, this all-white community. He was damn near disowned by his family by what he did, but he didn't care. What he did care about was my mom. When we finally made the move, it did not take long for my mom to start reproducing. Uh, she had three additional kids inside of five years. My mom was still um, taking drugs and getting wigged out and the whole nine. And guess what? Being that I'm the oldest, you know, I'm left to care for my brothers and sisters. I was braiding hairs, changing diapers, cooking dinners, caregiving at age nine. Even caregiving for my mom when she was under the influence of, of the drugs. My stepdad worked all the time. I kept him at a distance at all times. So um, I really didn't have any type of relationship with him at that time. So it was just me fending for my brothers and sisters. And I hardly got a chance to do those normal childhood things that the other kids would do. And if, it, if I did get a chance, it was very sporadic and very short. I remember when at age 11, when I came home from school, I threw my bags on the chair and I ran to the bathroom and I opened the door and my mom was sitting there with a tube tied around her arm and she had a needle actually in her arm. I knew my mom did drugs. I knew she did it, but I never actually visually saw her do this. When the door opened and she looked at me, and I just stared at her and I just yelled at her. And that was the first time I ever did anything like that. I'm like, why are you doing this? And she says, I want you to sit here and I want you to watch me do this. And she said, I never want you to do this. This is gonna kill me. And like a brilliant 11 year old, I asked a pretty uh, elegant question. I said, mom, if you know it's gonna kill you, why are you doing it? She said, it, it, it makes me forget. She proceeded to tell me um, back when she was 18 years old, she was walking home from band practice and um, two guys grabbed her, took her into an abandoned apartment building and drug her up, up the staircase and the third man waiting and they brutally assaulted her, they raped her. 
a couple of weeks later, she found out that she was pregnant and she never told anybody. She didn't tell her mom. She didn't tell, she didn't say anything to anybody. She kept the kid. I knew that very second at 11 years old, that was a walking, talking, visual reminder of what occurred that night. I was a tragedy. I just felt like I was just a babysitter, caregiver, and that's all that I was good for because of how I came into this world. I was just in bad mental shape and I needed some type of an outlet. And I was in, introduced to the game of football by my stepdad. And I don't even like calling him my stepdad, my dad. He introduced me to the game. And it was crazy because it was a time when I did not want to spend any time with him. He was a season ticket holder for the New York Jets. And he would ask me every week if I wanted to go and I would say no. And I remember my mom telling me, the next time he asks you to go, you're going to go. Do you understand? So happens that one game uh, changed my life because it was against a team, um, the Chicago Bears. And one of the players on the Chicago Bears, his name is Walter Sweetness Payton. He was a running back. He played the way I felt. When I watched him play, he played with aggression. He played like he wanted to just kill somebody. From that moment on, I wanted to play football and I wanted to play his position. So at age 11, I started sleeping, waking up with a football. You would never see me without a football in my hand. Everywhere I went, I wanted to play. It became an obsession for me. It became my release, uh, going to the park and playing tackle football. Always the smallest one, but I did not play small. I just had so much aggression and frustration. But when I played, I felt normal. I felt like a normal kid. When I wasn't playing, I was that insecure, low self-esteem, low self-worth type kid. So I always wanted to play to feel better about myself. Football at that time became my salvation, my lifeline. I got an opportunity to try out for the high school freshman team. Now, I was five foot six, 97 pounds at the time. And what was crazy about that was, was that I was so paranoid that I was going to get cut because I was under 100 pounds. Just before the weigh-in, I snuck into the high school gym weight room and I took two five-pound plates. I unlaced my sneaker and I looped the shoestring around my waist and I hung up two five-pound plates in front of me and I draped uh, my sweatpants over it and my sweatshirt. So when I weighed in, I was over 100 pounds. That's how obsessed I was with the game. And um, I made the freshman team, which was great. Had a, a good freshman year. At the end of my freshman year, my high school football coach came to me and informed me that he was going to bring me up to varsity to, to start as a sophomore at quarterback. I was so excited. I was so happy. And it's like, you know, I pulled off a miracle as far as playing on Boston as a sophomore. Now I'm age 15 now. So I ran home to tell my mom I was excited. I embraced her like we were true mother and son. And uh, the first things that came out of her mouth was, um, 
you didn't do the dishes like you were supposed to and you, and you didn't clean the, the kid's room like you were supposed to. And I guess I did not hear her because I just went right into, hey, I made the vars I made the varsity for next year. And she proceeded to tell me I didn't make anything. I wasn't going to play because I don't, I didn't take care of home first. It was the last straw that broke the camel's back between me and my mom, for me, um, because I went in my room and I, I went on my side of my bed and I prayed uh, that she would go. I prayed to God that he, he would take her, that she would die. My mom died of double pneumonia and cirrhosis of the liver uh, with the drugs and she was drinking alcohol. Her body, her immune system was just so weak, she couldn't fight and recover from it. That was the cause of her death. But in my mind, the timing of me going to my room, going to the side of my bed, putting my hands together and praying that she would die. And then 72 hours later, she's gone. I don't care who you are. You're going to think you killed your mother. You're going to think you murdered your mother. My mental state was in a dire situation. I went in a dark hole. I was able to hide my face in a helmet and no one would be able to look at me because I was ashamed of myself. So even on the sidelines, I always kept my helmet on because I didn't want anybody to look at me. When I first found out my mom died, I was at school, extracurricular stuff, and then I came home and I walked down the road and I saw my dad's car in the driveway. I'm wondering what is the car is doing in the driveway. And that's when I found out my mom had died. Well, I'm coming home from school a few months after my mom passed and I see his car in the driveway again and I don't know what the heck happened. I, I'm thinking tragic stuff. And I walk in now, prior to that, I've never called that man dad before. It was always, hey, or just get into what I wanted to say. Um, and, I, and I was always forced to talk to him. I never asked him for money. I never asked, I never did any of that stuff. I walk in and I go in the kitchen and he's sitting in the kitchen and he has his face buried in his hands. And, and I said, hey, what's up? And he looked up and his eyes were watery and just, just stared and said, it's a rough day, you know, I, I, I just miss your mom. And then he put his head down. The first time I walked to him and the first time I touched him, I put my arm around his shoulder and I said, we're gonna be okay, dad. And his head leaned on my chest. And that's when we started the bond because we had to pull together. When my mom summoned me in that bathroom and she told me about what had happened to her, she made me promise her something. She made me promise that if anything were to happen to her or my dad, that I would keep my brothers and sisters together and we will never be split apart. I didn't mean anything to me at the time, but it became life or death years later.
Well, I felt quite emotional listening to the start of Vernon's story and his experiences and the issues that he's been dealing with from such a young age, from being a young carer to his really difficult relationship with his mother to the loss of his mother and and that bereavement. One of the things I'd like to pick up on just from my background working as a child psychologist is the impact of those early relationships in his life and the things which may have helped him cope there. And there's a theory that we touch on a lot in psychology based on the work of John Bowlby called attachment theory, which tries to explain human relationships. And at its core is this kind of understanding that young children need to develop consistent and good enough relationships with at least one primary caregiver so that they can develop good social skills, good emotional skills so that they can learn. It's in these relationships that we actually learn all the important stuff in life and and we develop this kind of mental framework or internal working model and that provides us with a script for how we see ourselves, how we see the world and how we see other people. The theory goes that if we have a good enough level of consistent caregiving, then that script starts to read along the lines of I am good enough, I am lovable, I am valued, the world is safe and others are trustworthy. But if that caregiving is inconsistent or disruptive, if there's trauma in it, then your script can run along the lines of I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, the world is unsafe and other people are rejecting or untrustworthy. I think what's really interesting about this script and a lot of the work that we do in psychology is that despite the fact that it's really powerfully encoded, it's also modifiable. And actually, it's through relationships that we can start to override any of those unhelpful scripts. I think in Vernon's case, he has this really difficult relationship with his mom. So one wherein she is often absent early on. She's often rejecting of him. She's abusing drugs, which compromises her capacity to care for him. And then there's the trauma of her rape and the non-acknowledgement of of some of his accomplishments and the things that are really important to him, like getting onto the varsity team. And I think all of these things can really leave their, their mark on you as you develop in life. And what I'd like to draw attention to is actually some of the really protective impact of the relationships in his life as well, particularly his relationship with his grandmother in those really early years. You can kind of hear the admiration in his voice when he talks about his grandmother and how many children she raised and and the the level of safety that she brought. He actually calls her his safe haven. He calls her the nucleus of the family. And that's very powerful ways of talking about someone. So I think his relationship with her was a real lifeline for him. And obviously one in which he started to see himself in quite a positive light. The world is a bit of a safer space. And then we also have this lovely relationship with his stepdad, who he initially really keeps at arm's length. And you can see that there wasn't that sense of trust or safety there. But actually, over time, they developed this lovely relationship. He goes on to call him dad. And I found it quite emotional, that part in the story where he talks about the first time that he calls him dad, the first time that he touches him. And actually, that was a really important part, I feel, in Vernon's story, where he was able to put his arm around him. There was no rejection there. There was a coming together. And he actually says from that point on, they pulled together. Brian, what about you? What's emerging so far in Vernon's story? I think what's happening with Vernon, as you, as you described, you know, his, his mother not acknowledging him, acknowledging his brother, uh, not being there for him, not celebrating with him, not being consistent and supportive. The pain he feels is immense and he then withdraws. But I think this often links to developing a way of making sense of what's happening, which could be, uh, you know, I'm different, I'm unlovable, I'm bad. Uh, and these thoughts that we have, if they're attached 
to mood or emotion. They encode very powerfully. They really sort of register on our hard disk. So you can then come away from these experiences and think that, you know, I'm a bad person or I'm an unlovable person. And there's a big area of psychology that looks at what's called cognitive conceptualization, which Piaget did and, and cognitive psychologists do, which then creates a sense of how do I, how do I, how do I manage this? And sometimes we go into what are called compensatory strategies. We start to do things that try and mitigate the distress we feel and ameliorate that distress. Um, so I think, I think with Vernon, you know, he, he avoids his mum. He, he, he doesn't have contact with her. But he also puts all his effort and time into caring. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data that youngsters who have to care for adults, and he talks about this, you know, you miss out on that childhood experience. You miss out on being a kid. So we know that people who have these early experiences that are quite traumatic, and Vernon's were seriously traumatic, they can start to shift how you see yourself. They can start to shift how you believe you're seen in the eyes of others. And with mood and emotion and repetition, this can become a deeply embedded belief and then drive a, a, great, deal of, a great deal of our behaviour. And what about you, Al? What's emerging for you so far? For me, I think, I mean, it's just um, a really sad story. Um, but I think this little light appears, the sort of lights around, you know, the different people who are nice to Vernon, but also this role that sport plays in his life. The fact he finds football, he can be finally experience what it feels like to be a child. And I think that discipline that sport brings you can have an extraordinary impact. And I think for Vernon, it's clear that he suddenly has something to focus his attention on. It's an emotional outlet. He said he needed an outlet for that negative emotion and aggression he was carrying. So sport, it isn't just about something to interest people or give them something to do. It actually is a focus. It's emotionally really helpful. And physiologically, you're actually getting rid of a lot of that sort of pent up feelings that many children and, and adolescents have. But in the context of Vernon's story, that had been, it sounds like it was hugely beneficial. I think when you think about what, what Vernon went through and really significant caregiving from a young age, you know, from the age of nine, he was carrying a lot of responsibility and, and that persisted throughout kind of his teenage years. And I think those missed normal childhood experiences, you're absolutely right. Sport gave him that opportunity to kind of reclaim some of that or to be a different person and um, to kind of take the weight off his shoulders for a while. And I was looking into some of the research into young carers and some of the kind of core things that's been linked to resilience are where you have social support. So he's got in this story, we see we've got grandma, we've got his stepdad who, who he goes on to call his dad. Then there's a sense of connectedness. So it might be school connectedness, it might be sport connectedness, but he's got something that he wants to kind of connect to. And the third thing is a sense of self-efficacy. And again, sport brings that for him. It starts to bring a belief in himself that he's good at something and that that really helps kind of drive him forward. So it just kind of goes to show that with sports across the lifespan, it's not just about the physical fitness side of things. That's just one component of it. Actually, there's so much that it can do for our psychological well-being. And as you were saying, that kind of physiological release as well. And Brian, are there any kind of really standout positive moments in the story for you so far? I think one particular standout moment is one of the good things that his mum does is persuades him or tells him that he has to go to this football match with his stepdad, which he does. And he suddenly has this epiphany, this sort of Pauline experience, because he watches a player 
Walter Sweetness Payton, and he just thinks this is this is fantastic. That that man is playing how I feel, and he just becomes so excited by it. And it, it's a pivotal moment in his life because I think he suddenly sees and becomes aware that there's something that he can do. And I think this uh, process is 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 really extraordinary because he then becomes, as he describes, obsessed. But it also becomes a release. Uh, he didn't play small. He felt normal when he was playing, but when he was not playing, he felt a low self-esteem. So this suddenly gave him a lifeline, a form of spiritual and emotional nourishment that, that, that really filled a void in his life because there was such a void in other domains. And I think the other thing it did is that he had a purpose. He had a meaning. He had something that he could put his energy into. And then I think it links to this beyond purpose and meaning, to this sort of sense of hope, but also agency, that he could do things that could allow him to get better at this and his whole thing, putting the weights down his pants in order to be heavier. He just decided, I've got somewhere I want to get to. How do I get there? And he's, you know, he's really putting every effort into, into doing that. And it becomes something that I think gives him a great source of strength and self-esteem, as, as El was talking about. Sport can really do that because you see the, the fruits of your effort and he starts to see those fruits appear, which I think just gives him a lifeline. So there's already been so much in Vernon's story. So I'm really interested to hear where this goes next. I always wanted to play the position running back. I never wanted to play quarterback, which the guy that throws the ball. But my coach felt like I was the best person to play that position. So he, I played it for all four of my years that I was in high school. But I told him that if, if I got an opportunity to play college, I wanted to play my position that I wanted to play all along, and that was running back. I was five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing. He didn't think that we were going to have a huge selection. But the work that that man did for me to give me those options, um, it's priceless. He actually got a school that was so interested, you know, they flew me out. And it was Carson Newman College, a small school in Tennessee. It was uh, 30 miles east of Knoxville. It was an all-white community. Um, it was a very small school, 2,300 students at best. And the only African-Americans that would go in there were athletes and foreign exchange students. The recruiting trip was interesting because when I first got there, 15 minutes into the tour, I wanted to go home. It was unbelievably country. It was unbelievably small. And I said to myself, there was no way in hell I'm going here. It wasn't until I met the head coach, Ken Sparks. And long story short, the man got me to a point to where there was no other place that I could play or wanted to play or be at than Carson Newman College. When I went home and I told my dad that, because he asked me, you know, how did the trip go? Did you like the school? Did, he was asking me all, it was such a cool conversation. It really was. It was the first conversation that we had that we were both smiling and talking about. But then it hit me that I was going to leave them. I was going to leave him with the kids 
And I said, you know what? I can always go to the local college, Wagner College. I know that I can get in there and, you know, I can be by the family. And he just stopped me in mid-sentence. And he says, no, no, you've done too much for this family. It's your turn. It's your time. Me and your brother, we got this. You have to go, VT. You have to go. I would call home and report what I did in the whole nine. And I remember like the uh, sixth or seventh game of the season, I received a call from my from my brother. And he said that dad had a stroke. I asked him how bad it was. And he, you know, he said it was pretty bad. He's in the hospital. He says, I'm going to the hospital again now to see how he's doing. A couple of days passed. And I'm at practice and I see a receptionist come from the building to the practice field, spoke to my running backs coach. And I'm staring at these people and I'm thinking, um, you know, okay. I see my running backs coach walking and I just knew that he was gonna come to me. And he did. And he said, hey VT, let's, uh, let's go talk in the office. There was a rule that you couldn't wear your cleats in the building. So I sat on the side and I was unlacing my shoes. And my coach said, don't worry about that, let's go. And when he did that, I knew it was something worse. I knew it was bad. So when we got to his office, um, he told me to call home. And when I called home, my brother told me that my dad had passed away, had died. There's only one thing that came to my mind. It was the conversation that I had with my mom and her making me promise that I would keep the family together. And that's all I thought about. I didn't show any emotion at the funeral. I had my sunglasses on. So much so, my, my sister accused me of not caring. She knew the, the relationship I had with my dad and she accused me of not caring. And that hurt big time. But the only thing I thought about was keeping my brothers and sisters together. They didn't realize how bad off we were in regards to the situation that we were in. So I got an opportunity to pull my mother's sister aside, my aunt Pat, and I asked her if she can stay because she was out of all my aunts and uncles, she was in the best position to make a, an abrupt change like that with her family. She said, I'll have to think about it, baby. And then the next day she told me to go back to school so she was going to stay. Start of my senior year, I received a phone call from my aunt. I can tell in her tone that it wasn't, it wasn't anything good. And she said, baby, this is not working financially and mentally, emotionally. Um, I can't do it anymore. We're going to have to split the kids up. I took the call standing up and my knees literally buckled. I was unbelievably horrified because that wasn't the plan. That wasn't an option. So I literally, I literally begged her to let me finish out the school year before she did anything. And she heard the desperation tone in my voice and the plea. And she said that she would stick around to, until I got done with school. 
I knew that I had less than that, that time to figure something out. But in the interim, I sold all my electronic goods. I started cutting hair and uh, um, sending all that money home, doing odd jobs, side jobs that I can find to send money home to help. But I knew I was on the clock. I asked myself one question. If there was anything that I can put my heart and soul into and would die doing it to try to help save my family, what would it be? And it was only one thing, and that was football. I wasn't that type of football player that can try out for an NFL team and make it. I wasn't that type of athlete. But I did know that if I was going to do anything very fast, I would have to pull off a miracle. I forgot that I was an average person. I forgot that I was an average athlete. I forgot about that because I was about to lose my family. So I decided I was going to try out for the National Football League. And the first person that I called was my high school football coach. And instead of him laughing at me, he said, okay, V, let's get you an agent. No hesitation. And that's how the ball started. That was the start of my barefoot hike up Mount Everest and making it at that elite level. I was doing three workouts a day for eight and a half weeks. I did a workout before, I did a workout during school, and I did a workout after school. That was my regimen. And I transformed my body in eight weeks to a 5'9", from 175 to 185 pound Ninja Turtle. That's what they nicknamed me. My speed was unbelievable because I worked out in all resistance. I would, I worked out eight and a half weeks with steel toe boots, uh, a vest, weighted vest, and um, sweatpants and sweatshirt all time. And when I ran, I took all that stuff off. I ran pretty fast, I think. I impressed enough coaches to where I got an invite to uh, the Denver Broncos. I didn't get drafted, but I got an invite to the Denver Broncos. And um, I was doing well up into the last game, the preseason game. And then the, the pressure was so heavy on me that I was so nervous that I had the game from hell. I dropped footballs, dropped a touchdown pass. And the next day, the coach called me in. He says, uh, Vernon, you're going to have a fine career in this league, but it's not going to be with the Denver Broncos. We're going to have to let you go. And that's when my heart dropped again because I thought I failed my family. I remember that was the fastest plane ride ever going home to New York because that was a plane ride I did not want to take. And I remember going out on the top of the escalator, going down to baggage claim. At the bottom of the escalator, was my high school football coach. And he had that look. You did the best you could type look. You got so far type look. Um, you should be proud of yourself type look. And the more I stared at him, the more pissed off I got. I got upset. And the only thing I said to him was, and I yelled it at him, I said, it ain't over. It ain't over. And we never said a word driving home when he dropped me off at my house. My family was asleep when I arrived, so they didn't know I was home. But the next morning, 
I came out of my room and they all jumped on me. And I didn't know how to tell them. I didn't know what was gonna happen, how I was gonna support them. And my phone rings and it's my agent. And he said, don't unpack your bags, buddy. You're gonna sign with the Buffalo Bills. And I just stared at the phone. I said, what did you say? And he told me again. I said, don't mess with me, man. You know, and he said it again. And uh, I just remember just sitting there. And he kept asking me, are you there? Are you there? I, I was sitting there and I said, okay. And then I told my family and they were screaming and jumping for joy. And I told them I had to go to the bathroom. And it was the same bathroom that my mom made me promise keep the family. And I looked up and I told her we did it. First three years of my career, all my money went home, paid off the house, kept the family together the whole night. For the first time, I felt like I knew why I was here. I wasn't a tragedy anymore. I wasn't trash because I kept my promise to my mom. I gave it everything I had the years that I played for my family. I was so mentally and physically exhausted after six years. My family were, were good, they were fine, and my body said enough. I turned away from the sport for decades. I wouldn't look at a game. I wouldn't even talk about football. Though it saved me, I didn't enjoy my career because of the circumstances in which I was playing. I played for survival, not for enjoyment. It wasn't until people were telling me how I was because they would use me as an example for other young players. That was when I actually started enjoying my career. It really did save my life because no telling without the game what would have happened to me and my family. I don't want to know the answer to that question. Even though I would ask it in my head, I don't want to know the answer to that question. Oh my goodness, that is such an inspirational story. And you see these characters that have a really lasting legacy, even though they've only got a part to play. So people like his high school football coach, the way he talks about him and he says this thing, you know, what that man did for me. And he actually didn't laugh at him when he called him up to say that he wanted to, to go professional. He said, OK, and he got an agent on the phone. He talks about Ken Sparks and the role that he had in, in convincing him where to play football. And he also mentions his auntie Pat and the role that she played in actually allowing him to finish his senior year. And I think all of these characters who who play a really important part in Vernon's story because they all believe in him, they all back him, they all support him to enable him to move forward with his sporting career in a way that allows him to connect with that sense of purpose in a way that ultimately allows him to be able to provide for his family and to fulfill that really important goal that he set himself of keeping that promise that he made to his mother. Elle, what are you finding interesting in the second part of the story? He just decided to go go big and try and make it professional. And I think a lot of us don't have necessarily the self-belief in order to make those leaps. But for him, he was on a mission. He was going to get there. That's kind of the role that psychology plays in high performers. 
So you're really seeing there the power behind the thinking and how actually that really drove to a large extent the outcome. But a lot of people won't try because they won't think they're good enough. He was on a mission. It was had to make it. It was binary. If I don't make it, I failed. And I think the fact that he made it, but he actually didn't enjoy the journey and he didn't really enjoy the process, that's a shame. But I think what he's done is still extraordinary. That line that he says where um, he said, I forgot I was an average person. I forgot I was an average athlete. He talks about this eight week period. It was really intense and he completely transformed his body, his speed. And that's really inspired me. I'm thinking, okay, in eight weeks now, what can I do uh, at my level of sporting prowess? Brian, what about you? So second half of the story, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I, I pick up on Elle's point about uh, the sort of binary aspect of this. I think um, the emphasis, the drive for this has come from his early experiences and how does he make reparation and prove he's not trash. And I think that's partly why he didn't enjoy it because it's a total, utter, complete commitment to achieving this goal. And there's that extraordinary conversation with his aunt when she rings up and says, um, you know, she's not going to be able to do this. And he says, you know, my, my knees gave way. I think it is such a commitment, it is such a goal. So it's a fantastic story of human endeavour uh, against so many odds. Amazing. And I think on Auntie Pat, I mean, she literally gave up her home, moved her children, looked after various other children, gave up years of her life, really, to be a supportive aunt. I mean, I'm really questioning myself as an aunt right now. <laughs> I've, I have to negotiate over a half day of babysitting. But um, <laughs> yeah, I do feel like um, she was a really extraordinary lady. That was defining, wasn't it? Because if she didn't do that, then he'd have had to come home. So, um, so yeah, Auntie Pat's a legend. Auntie Pat is a legend. Agreed. Agreed. And what's quite interesting to think about in the story as well is that we often try and split out what's happening physically in our body to what's happening psychologically. But in essence, we just can't separate these two things. It's like two sides of the same coin. And over the course of Vernon's journey, he's under such a lot of strain as a result of his early experiences. And he puts so much into this, both physically and psychologically. And there's points in the story where he talks about that impact. And at the end, when he achieves his goal, you can see how much he's worn down by this. And in his own words, his body says enough. And what's nice is that towards the end of the story, you see a sense of him having had time to process things and to heal. It feels like he's on quite a sort of isolated journey to success around his sort of sporting career and, and ultimate goals. So obviously he's playing American football. That's a team sport. Um, so he, in theory, it would. I hope that he would have experienced a lot of sort of good things linked to that. So being part of a team. So we know being part of a team, having team cohesion, that sort of collaboration, that shared goal is uh, really good for your sort of well-being and your psychological health. So um, he didn't explicitly mention his teammates. And I think it's because he was on such a personal mission linked to his own family, the story's told in that way. But yeah, it's interesting to think about potentially the role that his teammates might have played too. And one of the things I think, Brian, that he finds quite difficult is knowing what to do with his more difficult emotions. I was just wondering if you wanted to pick up on that. He talks about, you know, playing football and I hid my, hid my face in a helmet because of shame. I didn't want anyone to look at me. 
and and I think this is this is a legacy. This is a consequence of of the trauma and the emotional distress. The other thing he did is he took himself away from it uh, when his when he was being rejected or ignored by his mother, who went to talk to his brother. And I think this is what we do when we develop periods of intense emotional pain: is we look at ways of avoiding it. And um, it's interesting at his father's funeral, which is a similar metaphor where he. He, his sister accuses him of showing no emotion and not caring, um, and he had his sunglasses on. And, and again, there's not wanting people to see that you're distressed, not wanting to talk about distress, not wanting to go there. So a lot of us uh, can develop a bit of emotional phobia where we don't like talking or feeling emotions or even hearing about other people's emotions because it wakes up emotions in us. And there's a lot of evidence that actually being able to process emotions, sit with emotions, and actually become more comfortable with uncomfortable feelings is, is, is a very therapeutic process. I think for me, one of the things that just blows me away listening to Vernon's story is the number of different types of challenges that he had to overcome and the different levels of resilience that he's shown across so many different areas of his life. And he mentions, you know, at a very young age, how he has gone from living with his grandma in a very kind of known and familiar neighborhood to kind of overnight being plucked away from that safety and security and going to a very different all white neighborhood where no one looked like him. He had no experience of being there before. And how challenging that would be at any point in life. But to do that as a child must have been phenomenally difficult. And he talks about that again at university. He's chosen to go to this college, which is actually, again, predominantly white. He talks about the fact that the only African-Americans that were there were sports scholars, foreign exchange students, etc. So managing and navigating those challenges in the absence of anything else, I think, just shows the, the breadth and the complexity of his coping skills. Um, so he has that, but he also is able to provide for his family, build a sporting career, change his body. It's just such a phenomenal and enduring story of resilience. Vernon's story is a really amazing example of how your past doesn't need to drive your future. And I also think it's probably a great example of an incredibly long, long journey, an ongoing journey of resilience. Um, so this isn't just sort of a one-off event. These are decades and decades of his life that he's had to um, continue to sort of go through the process of of being resilient. And yeah, I think we're just really grateful that he's shared his story. And what about you, Brian? I think there's two big messages for me from this story. One is it was chance that he went to the match, but well, it wasn't because he was told to, but it's chance that he fell in love with it. And that was a, a fork in the road for him. But I think there's also a group of role models. One was grandma. His coach at high school was a role model. Ken Sparks was a role model. His stepfather became a role model. And what he looked at is what do good people do and what do bad people do? I think his core belief, I am bad, is mitigated by his compensatory strategy of keeping the family together. That's his whole drive in life. If he can keep this family together, then he's not a bad person. He's disconfirming his core belief. And the really exciting thing is he's starting to enjoy it again. And I think um, that, that's just uh, a, a nice ending to what has been a very, very difficult journey. Indeed, he's a remarkable individual. 
Vernon's story is a great example of how a sense of duty, commitment to keeping a promise and a strong sense of purpose can drive us to overcome the most phenomenal odds. If you're interested in learning more about the psychological skills and concepts that we talk about in this series, we're now running open positive programs for people from all backgrounds. The program trains you in four core areas of psychological capability and helps you to develop practical skills that will allow you to adapt and thrive, both in your personal and professional lives. You can find out more by following the link in the description and you can also save 10% with our special Resilient Road discount code RR10. If you enjoyed this episode of The Resilient Road, please remember to subscribe, share and leave a review. It really helps us to reach more people. Next time, we'll be hearing the amazing story of Rob Bellot, a lawyer who spent decades in legal battles with DuPont after he discovered they were contaminating local drinking water near their manufacturing plant in West Virginia. The Resilient Road is brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured Vernon Turner, You can find out more about Vernon's story in his book, The Next Level, A Game I Had to Play. This podcast was produced by Cass Denton and Palama Kaufman, with sound design and mixing by Palama Kaufman. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, visit www.positivegroup.org.